What's going on, everybody? Leo Canell here with today's Seven Figures Club podcast. Today, my friends, we've got an amazing guest for you. I've absolutely, you know that our goal here at this podcast is to help you become one of the 7% of entrepreneurs who actually earn the seven figures, you know, in revenues and beyond up to eight, nine, 10 figures and so forth. Today, we've got a teacher, a mentor, an entrepreneur who's going to guide you to join the Seven Figures Club and beyond to take your startup, your dream, and the, the solution that you're providing for others and get it to the next level. Today, we have Captain Stephen Hoffman. He's known as the captain and CEO of Founders Space, which is one of the world's leading startup accelerators. Founders Space was ranked the number one incubator for overseas startups by Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine. He's also a venture investor, serial entrepreneur, and author of several award-winning books, including Make Elephants Fly. We've got Surviving a Startup, which is his latest book that he's going to enlighten us a little bit more about that. And The Five Forces. He's been published by Hatchet, uh, Ben Bella, and HarperCollins, which is, boy, that's a uh, that's good, uh, good company there with the entrepreneurs that have been published there. Captain Hoffman, welcome to the podcast. There are over 32 million businesses in the U.S. and over 90% of them will never break seven figures in annual sales. So how do we as entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs break into that seven figures club? This podcast will relentlessly share the secrets, strategies, and tactics I've used to create three multi-seven figures businesses and bring in even more successful entrepreneurs than me to share their inspirational stories and tactics to success. You can create your dream business in life right now. So buckle up and let's go. Thank you. It's fantastic to be here. Now, when we start this podcast, we always like to kind of understand a little bit more about your background. Of course, uh, everything in that bio kind of uh, you know speaks for itself. But uh, Captain Hoffman, going back to when you were a kid in high school, you know, what was your background like? Who was Stephen Hoffman? And you know, where did this entrepreneurship you know, ideology come from? I think entrepreneurship for me came from my desire to create and build. So I have always been a builder. You know, when I was a kid, all the way through high school, I made 50 movies with all my friends. Some of them were animated, live action, you name it. I was making it, organizing them. It's also a, a gamer. So I was not only playing video games, but I was making games, board games, role-playing games, constantly generating stuff, creating stuff. So naturally, when I graduated college, that urge to continue creating and to create my own products drove me to be an entrepreneur. I, since then, I've done two bootstrap startups and three venture-funded startups in Silicon Valley. Wow. So a number of different startups and... Tell us, if you could, about your first startup. What was that like? Where did the idea come from? Did you have partners? Uh, how long ago after college did it start? Or did it start in college? It started after college. I had actually, right after college, I went to school in electrical engineering. I went to grad school in film and television. I worked my way up in Hollywood, became a TV development exec really quickly. I got lucky. Then I jumped over to Japan and worked for their game company, Sega and you know helped come up with new ideas for video games and then i got the itch after a year of doing that i was like i got to get back to the united states start my own company so i moved back to silicon valley and i launched lava mine 
Wava Mind was stands for erupting with ideas, and we had so many ideas. But the first product we launched was called Gazillionaire. Now, Gazillionaire, ironically, is a game to teach people to become entrepreneurs and become zillion gazillionaires, or in your terms, seven figure club. So, Gazillionaire, I literally, because I had an engineering background, I coded it myself. And I brought in artists and sound people, but I funded the whole thing. It was a bootstrap startup. And that first game that we made out of my house actually took off in a big way. It was published by the largest PC game publisher at the time, and it just exploded. And Gazillionaire, we went on to make Zapitalism, Profitania, all these games about starting companies, how you start companies, run them, manage people, advertise, everything. And... And today, those games are on Steam. So they still live all these decades later. The games are still out there and have a fan base. Captain Hoffman, that's incredible. So your background was in video games and connected up with Hollywood. And, uh, you know, for some of our younger listeners, they might not know Sega, but I certainly recognize uh, Sega and uh, some of those early games. And Sega was kind of like a, a preclude, I think, to Xbox and to PlayStation and for a time there, I think really, and I don't know if this is true, it seemed like they overtook Nintendo, which has kind of been number one for a long time before that. That's correct. Uh, I was at Sega when they just passed up Nintendo and became the number okay. one video game company in the world. Yeah, no, Sega was huge. And so then, all right, you're building stuff for others. You've always been a builder. So how much money did you invest, uh, you know, and this was a little bit uh, a few years ago, how much are you to actually bootstrap and invest in that, uh, that online game? And, and when was this? When was this uh, online game created? This was in the 90s, the mid 90s. Okay. okay. And I invested 10K, like, and that included yeah. everything, hardware, computers, you, the, you name it. It was a very low budget game. Yeah. And actually... I like to say the game was outdated the day it was released. It wasn't the cutting edge game that you know people think of when they think of video games because we had no money. However, the gameplay was so addictive. People and the and the artwork was so psychedelic and off the charts that people fell in love with it. And they, you know, fans just stuck with those games. So the purpose of the game, explain the purpose of the game. The purpose of the game was you are an interstellar trader. And you have to build oh, and so run. Kind of a little Star Wars meets entrepreneurship then. Yeah, Star, Star Wars. Trek, maybe. Yeah, Star Trek, Star Wars, Alice in so Wonderland. Cool. It's a crazy game with all these crazy creatures. And you're one of these creatures. And you are trading weird things like jelly beans and lava lamps between planets. And there's a very simple but sophisticated engine economic engine behind there where you are trying to find out you have you have to gauge the different economies of the different planets and quickly decide you know what's the best product to buy for certain planets and where to go and then you're racing your competition to get there and you have to hire a crew you have to expand buy bigger ships grow your business but you have you are always at risk of running into a debt spiral where you literally are spending way more than you can make in the short term, and that can tank your company. So let's talk about some of the entrepreneurial concepts. Now, obviously, you run a startup incubator, one of the best with Founders Space. But using you know this first startup that you had as an example, how did you generate users, customers, clients, whatever you want to call it, and what was how were you able to discover how much it cost you? 
you know, to generate a, a paying customer or just, you know, a user on your platform. When I first started, I didn't know anything. Like I didn't know what I was doing. It's the early days. They didn't have startup incubators like I run yeah. now. You know, I had no relationship with any venture capital. I just put in my own money, decided I was going to do this. We literally put the game out there. And in those days, it wasn't as easy. Like they didn't have Steam and all these platforms where you could, you know, Xbox and all these things. So we had to upload our game to BBSs, which were called bulletin boards. People didn't even browse the web then, but the early users were on CompuServe and these AOL and these other platforms, and they could access these bulletin boards and download our shareware. And then they literally, because there was no e-commerce, had to send us cash in the mail, cash or a check. And we received our first sale from none other than Lord Geck. Now, you can imagine who Lord Geck was because he was this total geek on the internet, goatee and all, chubby guy. And, you know, he mailed us in that check and we were so thrilled. We invited him to dinner to come to our house, have dinner. We got to know Lord Geck and it started that way. And then we were making a little money. But what really, when we really took off was when the quality assurance testers, the game testers, at Micropro Spectrum Hall, like the big game company, PC game company at the time, they got hooked on Gazillionaire. They started playing it and they loved it. And the word went up the management chain that we have this game that our whole QA team is playing and they're not doing their testing. We got to get in here and acquire it. So that's what, that's what gave us our break and our real start. And they distributed it everywhere, globally, all the retail stores, everything. And so basically at that point, it gained popularity, it's taking off, it's growing exponentially, and now you have the opportunity for your first exit, it sounds like. Well, I didn't exit. So this yeah. was a company that we just published these games and all the cash came in. And we actually made sure in this case, we made sure because this was a labor of love. So we made sure to own all the IP. Like this was the really smart thing we did early on. We decided we have a great game, uh, we are going to own the sequel rights. So we always kept the rights. And that's why we own them today. And they're just cash cows. Like they keep paying us like considerable amounts of money many decades later. So for entrepreneurs out there, I like to tell them, and I write about this in my book, Surviving a Startup. Okay. You don't have to get venture funding. That isn't the only path. That is one path. And it's right for certain types of business. So this business was, we were running, basically we were game developers. And we were running the, these products and we could just basically pocket all the cash and we hadn't really structured it. So it was a scalable big business. So in this case, it wasn't really a venture fundable business and we didn't waste our time trying to raise venture capital. I did that on my second company. I went out and raised venture capital because that was a much bigger play and a whole different business model. Well, this is a perfect segue uh, Captain Hoffman, let's go right into venture capital. Now, when a lot of entrepreneurs are launching, at what point should they be looking to raise capital or at what point should they be looking to maybe bootstrap a little? And I think there's a mis misperception of the need to raise capital, maybe, you know, a timing or a sequence, you know, part of that that is off for a lot of business owners, especially you know, 90% of businesses are, are not big scalable. They might be mom and pop type businesses. So what, what, how do you distinguish that? And, and I'm sure you've got a lot of ideas, but how should someone know it's time to raise capital versus bootstrap? So there are a lot of signs. If you're, first of all, if your business is going to grow linearly, 
you know, if it's if it's not going to if the revenue and the user engagement isn't going to grow exponentially, forget it. Like that is not a venture fundable business because venture capitalists, I'm a venture capitalist now, so I sit on the other side of the table. We understand that we, you, you, if a business isn't growing like crazy, if it's not really shooting up exponentially, the chance of getting an exit, a sizable exit is really small because people simply aren't going to acquire that for any amount of money or, and it's definitely not going to go public unless you see that growth curve. So, so how would you define that though? How do I know if I'm in a business that has that potential versus one that doesn't? I will tell you. So there are a few things. One, we talked about scalability. So certain businesses are hard to scale. So let's say you run a consulting business, really hard business to scale because you have to find talented, trained consultants, retain them and grow. And that takes all time and it grows slowly. There are big consulting companies, but they don't, they tend not to grow fast. And 99% of consulting companies never grow. A lot of businesses, another thing is a lot of businesses, and you'll see these on Kickstarter and Indiegogo all the time, they will sell products. They will sell products, but these gadgets and other things they invent are really cool. Like, you know, they might earn a million, yeah. 5 million, even $10 million on Kickstarter, but sometimes yeah. they aren't scalable. And one of the things is, do you have, when you get a customer, when you grab hold of a customer, does a customer buy from you once and then leave? If the customer buys from you once and then leaves, and it's not a big ticket item, like a car, like a Tesla, if it's a small item, then it's really hard to make enough money from that customer to go out and acquire more customers. Now, customer acquisition tends to be the biggest challenge for startups. So the businesses that are really good at scaling are when they get a hold of a customer and they get, they never let go. Like, and they monetize that customer deeply, meaning they monetize that customer, not just once, not just twice, but over and over and over again. Look at the companies out there that are totally scalable, the ones that are huge. Amazon, you're always buying something from Amazon. They're always making their share. Google, you're always going back to Google. There's always advertising. It's always making its share. Facebook, the exact same thing. You name the company that grows really, really big, most of them monetize their customers over and over, over a long period of time. That's called their lifetime value. You get that lifetime value big enough, and then investors can come in and say, whoa, this is a big lifetime value. I, you know what I'll do? I'll advance you the money to acquire more customers. That's essentially what venture funding is. I'll advance you the money to acquire more customers. I'll advance you the money to build out your team and company to support those sales. Because I know I can look and I can tell I'm going to get that money back, you know, in multiples. That's the equation they run in their head. The other thing venture capital like to see in a company is that you lock in those customers, meaning once they come to you, once they buy into your not just product, but your ecosystem, or as we call it in Silicon Valley, your platform, when they buy into that, it's very hard for them to take the value they have there and jump to somebody else because they are locked in. For example, I'll give you a few examples. Please. You know, it, if you, you know, if you have a platform where the customer is actually investing time, investing resources, integrating it with their workflow, all these different things, then to actually take that and move it to somewhere else, really hard. Salesforce is a great example of this. 
Salesforce isn't the best CRM software out there. Like there are a lot of competitors and they do a lot of things better. You know, Salesforce is clunky. It's big. It's, you know, not the cheapest out there, not the most streamlined for every task. But what they did was build an incredible ecosystem. So it's not only you get Salesforce when you come there, but they have all these partners who have integrated into their platform, yeah. providing services. You, you literally can't find this entire ecosystem of all these different applications that you can use. And you'll start using the other ones. The more you use it, the more you integrate with all these different partner apps and everything, the harder it is to leave. You just can't take them and jump somewhere else. And nobody else who comes after them can really offer that because it, they were a first mover. They captured the market. They got all those third parties in there. That's what building a platform is. So investors like me in Silicon Valley, we're looking for that. Like Facebook is a different type of lock-in. Like when you come to Facebook, literally most of your friends are there. <laughs> they're not. And if you jump to some other new social network, they're probably not going to be there. It's really hard for new social networks to take off and compete with Facebook. And when they do, a lot of times Facebook is smart enough to buy them. Like WhatsApp, like Instagram, they'll just jump in and buy them because they for huge amounts of money because they know that they have that network effect. Amazon two-way marketplace, a whole nother, you know, ecosystem. The more customers there, the more sellers will be there. And the more sellers will be there, the more customers want to come. Boom, you have something extremely valuable, hard to replicate. Well said, Captain Hoffman. So a lot of these, you know, businesses I'm hearing that you're talking about, they have a platform, they have kind of an online structure. There's recurring revenue, there's subscription models. And one of the books I read recently, Built to Sell, that's one of the things that author promotes is, hey, you want to have something that they're going to come back month after month, just exactly what you're talking about. Now, there was a time it seemed like that you could build a platform and just if you had users, then eventually the idea was you'd be able to monetize them, kind of maybe like Snapchat and some of these others. But it seems like nowadays you really are seeing more a lot of SaaS companies, software as a service. And from day one, there's a value there's a product and there's a subscription service with payment. How easy or difficult would it be to create something with free users versus paid users in today's market, would you say? Freemium, the freemium model is really yeah. powerful. And we see this across SaaS companies, you know, software as a service, if you, they, they'll offer a free tier. It's usually pretty limited because they want to move you into the paid tier as quickly as possible, but it's enough really to try it out. It's more like a demo, like you'll try it out, but if you're a real user, you will upgrade. So that tends to be the preferred model. And investors love SaaS because subscription revenue is predictable. You can literally, it's much, it's, you can look at it and say, wow, you have this many customers. They're this engaged. This is a lifetime value. We can, we can run the math. The math is super simple. We can see over their lifetime, they're going to, you're going to make a lot of money with this. And Subscription models allow you to quickly go out. You're not relying on virality or other things. Those help. But every time you get a SaaS customer, they're paying you off the bat. You can turn that money, pump it right back into acquiring more customers. And the, the companies that tend to become market leaders, they dominate. It's a winner-take-all world. Software is a winner-take-all world because you can scale so fast and then you can start building out that ecosystem system and offering value that almost none of your competitors can compete with if you execute right. So what I'm hearing from you, Captain Hoppin, is, hey, it's good to have that freemium, that free model where you can generate users 
and then as quickly as possible, you know, help them take the next step to a paid version. What do you think some of the keys are, some of the success stories have been of those who have successfully graduated someone from a freemium, you know, account to a paid account? What do you feel like some of those, uh, you know, value bombs are that someone needs to understand some of our listeners need to pay attention to? I always say, if you're an entrepreneur out there, you and you're going and you want to know, does my business work? Like, is this thing going to take off? That's what everybody wants to know at the early stage. A lot of people have great ideas. Like there are so many entrepreneurs come to me with great with ideas that sound great. Like you just pitch them and they sound amazing. But when they put them out into practice in the real world, they just flop. Like they flop. And it's really hard to tell before you get it out there. That's why in Silicon Valley, we're always pushing entrepreneurs, get your product into the hands of customers as early as possible. And even before you have a product, literally, I don't care what your idea is. I don't care how great it sounds. What I really need to see is not your idea. I need to see that you as an entrepreneur have gone into the marketplace and you have identified pent up demand. Because I say great entrepreneurs aren't people who have this epiphany about a great idea. I actually think the really great entrepreneurs out there are great demand hunters. It's like you're an oil wildcatter and you are out there sticking holes in the ground, looking to release this pent up explosion of demand, like a gusher. The great thing about the world is demand is always shifting. Like the, all markets are always changing, new trends are always happening, technologies are being developed all the time. So there's always new demand out there. And a really good entrepreneur will come to an area. First, they'll identify there's a demand here. People are frustrated by this. People want a change here, but they won't have just one idea. They will have lots of ideas and they will start hacking away at it, testing this, testing that, testing. And honestly, if you go up to a customer you're trying to figure out if your thing is going to take off, right? And you talk to that customer and, and you talk to a hundred customers, let's say, and all 100 customers look at what you have and they say, oh, that's nice. Come back when it's ready. Like come back when you build it, we'll try it out. If you get that reaction from a hundred people, you absolutely know for sure you are dead in the water. Like your company is, you might as well walk away from that company. You know, you have to pivot like crazy. And you're like, why? A hundred people said it was nice. They come back later. Well, they're blowing you off because there are so many nice to have apps and you never use them. I know on my phone, whenever I download an app, I'll look at it. I'll be like, oh, that's pretty nice. I forget about it. A month later, it's deleted. That's how people work. The only products that ever go anywhere are where there's that massive demand, that it, what I call extreme demand, where when somebody sees it, they're like, oh my God, I have to have this. Oh, that's so cool. That's so amazing. Or that really solves this problem that's driving me crazy. Or this is on my top three list, like my top three list. This is something that I've been waiting to get done and you have it for me. I need it today. And if you get that reaction, you got something. That means you hit the demand. And if there are enough other people out there like that, who have, you know, have that reaction, you got it. Now, graduating them to from freemium is not a problem if you have the demand. Like you don't, you literally, all freemium does is show them what you have. It's a great way to get in the door because if they, you know, people who want something, entrepreneurs, I see they're, they're like, lots of them spend years like Sisyphus pushing a boulder up a hill and then rolls down, push it up a hill and rolls down. And they're like, what am I doing wrong? I have this amazing technology. We built this like flawless product. And I'm like, 
nobody cares. <laughs> like they don't care enough. There's just this lack of demand. So how do you know if you've got the demand? That just the reaction, just uh, you know, doing the the interviews with potential customers and just seeing that reaction, or how do you actually define that? Hey, I've got magical demand. I've got this. This is something that's real, and I don't have to pivot necessarily. So if it's B two B enterprise, you're going out to other businesses, you can just tell, like you get in front of them with this and it hits a pain point. And they're like, yes, yes. When you show it to them, if you show it clearly, like, and it doesn't have to be, it could be a prototype. It could even be a PowerPoint or a video, but it shows clearly the solution to their problem. That's driving them nuts. Uh, they, they will tell you, they were like, can, can, when can you get that to me? Like, I need that yesterday. You will get that reaction. If not, you, if they're, you don't have anything. It's sort of binary. Either you have it or you don't. And when you have it, you know for sure you have it. Like if you if you're looking at them, they're lining up to get whatever you have. If you have a beta, they're flooding into that beta. They're like they they need it. If you aren't getting that, if it's consumer, it's another story. Like consumers, right. there's a like, lot more complication. But if it's B two B you'll generally see that reaction a lot quicker and, and it's pretty clear. It's a consumer. You have to build a minimum viable product. You have to get a basic product out there usually to test the market. And that's why iterating really fast and learning how to get these products, these consumer products, especially into people's hands. And I always like to say people buy a product for one reason, one reason. They don't buy it for 10 reasons. It's not like it does this well, it does this well, it does this well. You know, that comes later. When, when you were first launching your startup, you have to hit that one extreme reason that they absolutely did, which means you know because your product does one of two things. One, it's either exponentially better than anything else out there that solves that problem, right? It's not incrementally better. If it's incrementally better, people, <laughs> they don't have time. Like, oh, that's great. You added some extra features. It makes it a little better. We don't care. It has to be like so much better that they're like, I can't live without this. I have to have it or it has to solve a different problem that isn't being solved. So it, it taps into a new, you're creating new core value for these customers that they don't have using new technology or some new way of doing things, a new business model. You're creating that and they're like, oh, I need this in addition to all the other products I have. So, so go in there with the idea that your product's going to solve one really big problem. It's okay if you have additional options benefits that solve additional problems, but really it's about that one core problem at the beginning, um, you know, when you're first launching and starting out. Now, in your book, Surviving a Startup, um, you know, Captain Hoffman, you talk a lot about, listen, 90% of startups do fail and absolutely everybody needs to buy this book so that they can understand what they need to do to avoid that. But just, you know, thinking about that book, what's one of the big reasons why startup fails and, and for every listener out there who's trying to get a side hustle or get something off the ground, what is something they need to be aware of right from day one? One of the biggest reasons startups fail is because people stick with the same idea too long. Like the, because once you invest in an idea, you, you become passionate about it. You want it to succeed. It's your baby. Like, and it's really hard. A lot of entrepreneurs, and I did this myself in the early days for one of my, my first company was great, but later on, I, I ended up falling into this trap is that you start to filter feedback because you really want to believe that everything you put into this company is working. That's why 
you know, if entrepreneurs, so they stick with it too long and they literally run off a cliff. They run out of money and time and energy and they die. It, the really great entrepreneurs out there, surprisingly, try a lot of things and quit all the time really fast. So they'll try something. It's working. It's working. Oh, it's not working. Try something else. It's working. No, not working. Try something else. And they just keep hammering away until they figure out that magic thing. I mean, you look out there and there's some great examples like words with friends, right? I think that was like their 50th game that they, they, they were making and they were on the verge that of That was a good one. Yeah. And that, and then they could exit, <laughs> you know, and other companies, if you look at Slack, which is enormously popular today. Oh, we, we sure love it. Yeah. Yeah. But they were making a game originally that failed. They were making a game and the game wasn't working. And then they, they were scrambling around. And instead of sticking with it and keep adding features and yeah. praying that this game goes, they looked around. They said, oh, our engineers have developed a really good communication system between themselves. What if we commercialize this? People even look at YouTube, like seems like an overnight success, YouTube. Well, it wasn't. It was a video dating site when it began, a video dating site. And they were failing. And only as they were failing, they actually figured out, oh, you know, we want to share video files and we could use our platform to actually upload them there and just share a link, which allowing people to see the video files online. Boom. That, you know, as soon as they made that pivot, their business exploded. So for all the companies out there, don't stick with it. Like if it's not working like quickly, you, you, I, you can't, you know, putting lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig, right? You, you, if the core thing doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know what? That, that is so huge. So it's kind of this need to understand when is the time to pivot. And it reminds me of an example that I learned actually in a business law class when I was back in school way back when. And he talked about there was this uh, very tight bridge and these two cars were coming. They were both in their lane and they ran into each other and one of them fell off the bridge and people died. And who's liable, right? And so, oh, the city, the, some the, the car is liable. The driver's liable. No, it's the other driver. And what is the case telling you? What is the case telling you is reality? They went and measured it and the road was too small. It wouldn't have mattered. Who was how big the car was? They were going to run into each other because the case was telling them actually the city screwed up on the road. And so it's what is the market telling you, right? You had this idea, oh, it's YouTube dating, it's video dating. No, it's actually it's YouTube. People just love videos. They want to put videos up. They want to share the video of their dog, their cat, their family. And I think that's so big. What is the market telling you? What is your client telling you? And being open-minded enough to say it's not what I think is right. It's what the market thinks is right. And that's something I've really learned painfully over the years. And it sounds like you learned it really quickly. I learned it too, because I fell in love with my product. I fell in love and I have a rule. Don't fall in love with your product. You, you, Amen. It doesn't Amen. matter how much you love it, how much you're passionate about it, how hard, if you you could work every day, all day, day and night for the rest of your life on something. And it's not going to make a difference unless the customer loves it. So love your customer and and get your and build what your customer loves and if you do that that's the perfect recipe for success amen well said well in the book here it also takes you through the bolts and sweat and tears of running a real business it's kind of about dealing with you know dysfunctional teams and and at the end of the day what i really want to ask you is when you're early on and you're building your startup how do you build that culture, you know, and, and uh, Reed Hoffman talks about a culture of candor, a culture where, you know, you're attracting the top talent 
And what is some what are some of those foundational things that you have to do from day one if you're going to have a real culture in your team that attracts talent and gives you the chance to create a team that that can scale? I entrepreneurs ask me this question a lot. They're like, how do I build a great company? How do I attract great people, especially at the beginning when I don't have a lot of money? Like, how do I attract the best people in the world? And I'll tell you, if you don't attract top tier people, A plus people, somebody else will and they'll beat you. Like you, you know, inferior teams, even with a great idea and they're on the right path, they will fumble the ball and somebody else will pick it up and run with it, a better team. So having that team in place from day one is so important. I actually tell entrepreneurs the beginning, before you start spinning off ideas, before you start going to customers, before you do anything else, please put 80% of your time into getting the right co-founders. Like that is more important than anything else. Cause you don't know, like probably where you're starting out, the idea you're starting with, it's going to not be totally right or even completely wrong. But if you have these great people surrounding you, you have a chance to break through. Those are the companies that break through. But how do you get them to your question? How do you get these people? I will tell you, it's not having a lot of money that doesn't attract them. It's not having ping pong tables and free lunches and all these things and going to off sites. Don't worry about that. Like it doesn't matter at the beginning. What really matters more than anything else is that when you approach people, you don't approach them. And this is another reason I say it's best to start off with no idea at all. Like no idea. Like people like, I have to have the epiphany before I do a startup. I'm like, you do not have to have an epiphany because you don't know anything usually. The best thing you can do is have a direction, an area you're really interested in improving and innovating on. So you have this direction. You go out and find like-minded people, but not average people, people who are pretty amazing in their field, who have other backgrounds than you, like some are technical, some are marketing, some really understand you know, that whole ecosystem that you're about to play in. You bring them together. And because all of them have ideas, all of them are really passionate about making a change in this area, you allow all of you to own it. Like at the beginning, instead of you just owning it and having them buy into you and your, you know, whatever you want to do, you say, it's us. We're going to change this industry. Like we're going to change the restaurant business. We're going to turn it on its head. There are a lot of inefficiencies in the restaurant business. Bus you know, restaurants are suffering. They can't find talent. We're going to make a radical change there. Or we're going to go to the fishing industry, like with all the bycatch and they're depleting our fish stocks. And we're going to remake that fishing industry. You get all those right people who are just the perfect people for you to work with, both on a personal level, emotional level, and also technically, like execution-wise. And you focus on bringing them in. When you get them in, that's when you go out and start, if it's the restaurant industry, you start burrowing into the restaurant industry, getting to know everything you can about that industry. Where do they have their headaches? What frustrates them? What are the things, what are their top five priorities? Like if you're not on that list, forget it. Like what are the things that they're like really looking to do right now? Can you come in there with your team and understanding technology in a way that people in the industry don't, understanding being innovative and creative and new business models, can you radically change this industry? That's what you do. And that's then the rest company culture takes care of itself. Like I've seen the best company cultures when they're working in this rundown office building in a strip mall, like with wires sprouting out of the walls, but the people there are totally motivated. Like they don't care because they 
they believe in what they're doing and they believe this they are part of it they feel value for what they're creating they love the people they're working with that is great company culture but doing uh so don't worry about any of the other frills worry about getting people who already want to do this who are passionate about and giving them a chance to do that together so it sounds like uh really just having a big mission you know some some big purpose that solves a big problem that people can be passionate about that's more important than money. That's more important than the ping pong tables and, and the food and all the other you know, free stuff that you can get. It sounds like that's what really matters. And big mission, really important. Also really important how you approach them. So a great way to get people totally bought into what you're doing is not to be telling like them what to do, like acting like their boss. I'm the CEO, you do this, you do that, you do this. Because when you're telling them, you're shutting them down. Like they just have to listen to you and, and do what you say. But if you really want a great company culture, I have a rule and it's called ask, don't tell. So try this in your company. Like for a whole week, I challenge you, Leo, go into your company. I'm in, I'll do it. And, and, okay, you tell, and then you can report back to your listeners a week from now what, what happens. Go into your business. Do, try not to tell a single person a single thing for a week what to do. It's hard. It's hard. You're used to, all of us are used to telling people. Instead, you go in every day and you ask them, um, what do you think, what are you working on? You get information. What do you think uh, the next steps are? Uh, do you think you can move up the deadline? And you just ask them questions. And all the time you're gaining more information because you're not telling them. Do you have a better, do you think there's a better way to do that? You can ask your employees. You want them to improve instead of saying, just improve, you know, improve. That doesn't help them. And that sounds like ridiculous, like improve, do it better. You know, you can't, but you go to them and you say, do you think there's a smarter way to do this? Do you, are there some platforms out there or technologies that you think we could use? Come back to me with that. If you are constantly asking your employees, suddenly they're going to transform. They're going to be like, oh, my boss just asked me. I, and then they're going to feel like responsible and ownership. You know, oh, the boss trusts me to figure this out, you know, to do this a different way, to do it better, to get, get, you know, get it faster. Whatever you want, put it in question format. And I think that's one of the most powerful things when it comes to sales, when it comes to training, when it comes to you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, connecting with your customer, strategic partners, asking the right questions. It's not talking about yourself. It's not talking about your product. It's asking them the questions. What are the problems that they are running against? And what do they see as the solutions? And then trying to guide and help them. So that's huge. I will absolutely, you know, commit to ask them those questions and uh, moving forward that great. way. Uh, and, and you could tell me, and it's great, even if there are problems in there, you know, your job as CEO, you're too busy to solve every problem in your company. So if two employees, like they aren't communicating or two groups, you can go to each group and say, how do you think you guys can solve this problem? Can you come back to me with a plan for how you can get communication to how we can eliminate that bottleneck, whatever it is, you're just constantly asking. And then you'll find your team is so much more productive and happy. So let's say you've got it, this idea, you're getting traction and you're trying to get the whole team behind it. Um, you, you're solving, you know, a problem that it's mission driven. How important is it? And how do you structure a way so that, you know, someday you, you have an, uh, an exit, a merger an acquisition, you may be an, an IPO, whatever it is, you get to that big uh, mountaintop. How do you position it so that everybody can get a piece of the pie? And from day one there, they have ownership in this entire idea as well. I think a lot of entrepreneurs out there are too worried about their own equity share being diluted. 
So I work with them all the time. I've had an entrepreneur come up to me just the other day and he owns like 83% of the company. And he was like worried that he was going to get diluted, like for, you know, not giving, you know, during all these funding rounds. I'm like, you have 83% of the company. Don't worry about it. Like you focus, you know, this, this isn't your biggest problem because you're either going to be very rich or very, very rich or extremely rich, or you'll have nothing. Like, it's like, either it's no matter what the, if it's, if it's a good outcome, you'll be fine. Like, so what you really do is don't hoard equity, like be generous with your team. And Jack Maud Alibaba is a great example of this. Alibaba, like he gave away more equity than almost anybody ever gives. Like he had a, a really small percentage of Alibaba. Uh, by the time he was done, motivate, he's a real team person, right? And he was just like, he got this amazing team together and he was just giving them lots of equity. He's still one of the richest people in the world at the end of the day, because, you know, Alibaba became so huge and then they spun off Ant Financial, which he had an enormous yeah. stake in. Yeah, so like huge. one success leads to another. Don't obsess with just protecting your equity. Make it so that your team has a decent equity. Of course, you're going to put in stock options with a four-year vesting plan. So if somebody leaves early, they're not going to walk away with a bundle of equity. And you need to do that with the founders. You need to do that from the beginning. Like any company that is just giving out equity without vesting, including your own shares. Like if you aren't, if the people aren't committed to sticking with the company, they shouldn't get it. But if they stick with it in the long run, they work out well and they work really hard, they should be well rewarded. I like that. I think that's so important that everybody has a stake, even if it's a, a small piece, a small percentage. Hey, that thing goes IPO or, or merger acquisition, whatever it is, everybody's going to win. Now everyone's on the same page and, and they actually have ownership. And I think if you're listening, that is so powerful. That, that is so amazing. All right. So how everyone's listening to this, how can they work with, you know, you, with your team, with your company? How can they be part of your incubator so that they can take their startup from where it's at to where they want to be, which is the next step? What's the next step? How do they take action? So a great way if you want to work with Founderspace is just come to Founderspace.com. We have tons of content up there. Uh, startup kits, free videos, all this really deep material that can get you to the next level. So come to Founderspace. You can actually submit your business plans on our site. You can also reach out to me. Like I'm on Founderspace. There's a contact button on the front page. If you put my name in there, it'll get to me. You can also go to LinkedIn. Like I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on all the social networks, you know, just search for Founderspace or Captain Hoff. I'm there. I love working with startups. And our goal is really to help you, you know, help any companies out there with these hard problems. And we have different programs for different companies. We have like very simple educational programs for first time entrepreneurs who are just beginning and very sophisticated accelerator programs for mature companies that are really ramping up. Yeah, no, it's, it's remarkable guys. I'm at founderspace.com right now. Like he said, you can apply. Uh, to Founderspace Accelerator. He's got uh, programs on venture capital, on uh, corporate innovation. He has seminars. He's got workshops. He's obviously got the books. You want to definitely start with uh, getting surviving a startup. So because at the end of the day, too, you know, starting a business is not for everybody. I used to have this uh, ideology like everybody should and can start a business. But I know at the end of the day, some people you know, the risks, all the different things. But for those crazy people that and you're listening to this podcast and you know you need to start a business and you've got an idea that's going to solve a really big problem, 
you know, surviving a startup is a book you want to start out with. And then of course, founderspace.com and, and learning, learning from someone who's done it. I was uh, speaking at an event with uh, David Meltzer, who was a uh, CEO of, uh, you know, some pretty uh, big uh, sports agencies uh, back in the day still is. Uh, the movie Jerry Maguire was about uh, a company that he was the CEO of, but he talks a lot about, listen, life is not that complicated. It's an entrepreneur. Go talk to someone like Captain Stephen Hoffman, who started businesses, who's built them, who's made that impact, who's had exits, who understands and ask him for directions. He's already gotten to where you want to be. Life is not that complicated. Don't overcomplicate it. Go ask for directions from someone who's already lived it, done what you want to do, and it makes it so much easier to get things done, guys. Well, I want to give you the last uh, word, Captain Hoffman. We're awfully grateful that you spent some time with us. We're even more grateful that your resources and tools are there. What's the final word and the final focus that someone should think about in terms of looking at the fear of not starting that business? Okay, the fear of not starting the business, don't be afraid. So first of all, if you fail, and a lot of us do, there's always a sec, as long as you're breathing, there's another chance. You can go out there and do it again. So just take the leap. And honestly, all my businesses and most of the entrepreneurs I work with, they just do it. They just dive in there and they don't necessarily know a lot about the industry they're going into. And that's a disadvantage, but it's also an extreme advantage because you're seeing that industry through fresh eyes. Like, and you can do things, you can imagine things that people in the industry are just blind to. So I really encourage you to do that. I also want to give your listeners uh, free access to our 10 commandments of raising venture capital. So if they go there to founderspace slash 10, they can actually access this for free. Well, thank you so much. Uh, they're going to really benefit from that. Obviously, you know, funding is, is a big part of, of what we do in terms of uh, debt funding for smaller companies. But at some point, you're going to need some venture capital to take the next step. And that's where the expertise of Founderspace comes in handy so much. Thank you again, uh, Captain Hoffman, for being here with us. And everyone, take action. If you listen to this podcast, don't just say, wow, that was good information. Go take action. Go to Founderspace.com. Get the book, Surviving a Startup. Take action and do it right now. If you're driving, pull over, you know, use your phone, take action. That's the most important thing because if you just listen and, oh, this is great information, you don't do anything, then you're not going to benefit. So take the action and benefit. And we'll see you next time on the flip side of the Seven Figures Club podcast. Are you looking for more seven-figure secrets, content, or even how you can launch your own recession-proof business? Then check out sevenfigures.com. That's the digit seven, F-I-G-U-R-E-S.com, where we share more videos, stories, strategies, funding solutions, entrepreneurial education, and even the secret business type that's recession-proof. Thank you for listening, and if you're finding value in our podcast, please give us a five-star and invite others to join the club.